Christ Community Church, located at 25th and Thomas Avenue in Portsmouth, Ohio. Christ Community meets on Saturday at 5 p.m. and Sunday at 10.30 a.m. For more information, visit www.christcommunity.net or check out our Facebook page. Well, good morning, Christ Community Church. See, I knew that you guys would give me a better response than you give Matt. I just knew it. And it's because you're pumped up about the Kentucky win, isn't it? I knew it. I knew it. Uh, OH. See, there's more Buckeye fans in here now. Um, you guys are going to help me prove a point later. Thank you. Uh, so, if you don't know who I am, easy, Bill. If we got some new faces and you don't know who I am, my name is Andrew Rawlings. I am the student pastor here at Christ Community Church. I work with students who are in grade 7th grade all the way to senior in high school. And honestly, I still can't believe I get to do what I do. Um, if you hear about us going to, to Kings Island or you hear about us going whitewater rafting or, or to summer in the sun, whatever it is, it's a blast. And I get paid to do it. I still can't believe that this is my job. It's so much fun. Uh, I am a graduate of Wheelersburg High School, graduated in 2009. No booze, yes. And no cheers either, that's true. <laughs> And then I went on to Kentucky Christian University where I graduated in uh, 2013 with my degree in elementary education and a double major in biblical studies. Now, this is my first sermon here, uh, but I figured it was kind of appropriate with Youth Sunday, with our youth service going on. And before I go any further, how good of a job have our students done here this morning in greeting you, serving communion, worship? You guys have done a great job. I'm super proud of you guys. Uh, before I go any further, I have to do this. I am married. I've been married for four years to my lovely wife, Rachel. We live in Wheelersburg, and I have to give a shout-out to her because those signs that you saw coming in, the twirling of the signs and all that craziness that was going on at the end of the parking lot, she did all that. She is a wizard when it comes to creative stuff, and I'm not. So she has been a true blessing to me this week. So, Rachel, I love you. Thank you for everything you've done in helping me prepare for this. Give it up for her. Yeah, that's fine. She's going to be a little mad at me because of that, but I'm not making her get on stage, so I'm safe. Uh, so when we decided that we were going to have this youth service, we kind of looked at the schedule and where it all panned out. And we wanted to do a couple weeks on the church as a whole. And my grandpa did a great job last week discussing kind of how the church started and all these historical facts and he's better equipped to do that because I wasn't alive in those times like him um but so it, but seriously he's been what's called a lifelong learner and by by many people they've actually said it in front of crowds and talking about him and stuff and it's really humbling but I hope to be that one day but seriously he he would be much better equipped to talk about the historical facts of the church, how it all got started, and, and the mission of the church at the beginning. But I want to talk a little bit, if you'll let me, about the teachings of Jesus. Um, that, I feel like that's important. So we're going to dive right in, um, and if you'll join me in a word of prayer, we'll get going. Heavenly Father, I just ask that you will use me this morning to speak to this congregation, and that everything I say is just for the upbuilding of your kingdom, and that we can walk out of here with a better idea of who you are and how to apply your teachings to our lives. And if there's anything that I say that you don't want heard, I ask that it fall on deaf ears, and that through all this you would just be glorified and honored this morning. We love you, and it's in your name we pray. Amen. All right, well, that's the easy part. Let's get going. 
Uh, if you notice that your outlines, there is a quote at the very top. And my mom, when I was young, we used to jam out to some DC talk. I mean, windows down, blaring. Any DC talk fans out here? Thank you, Jenny. We have one. All right. There was a, a quote that always stuck with me. I'll never forget it. Uh, I think that the song is called The Hard Way. I think that's the title of the song. Uh, but it starts off with this quote, and it's always stuck with me because it's so powerful. And it's at the top of your outline. It says, The single greatest cause of atheism in the world today is Christians who acknowledge Jesus with their lips and walk out of the door and deny him by their lifestyles. That is what an unbelieving world, world simply finds unbelievable. I don't know about you, but considering I am a Christian, that hurts. I mean, as Christians, we're called to, to spread love and peace and offer the grace of God to everybody. And yet this quote right here, and probably truthfully says that we're causing atheism in the world by the way that we're acting, by the way that we're living out our lives. And if I had to guess, it's probably not what Jesus would have wanted. So today we're going to be talking about being a loving church and how to spread that throughout our entire lives and in this community, wherever we go, how to show the love of Christ to the people around us and why that's important. So we're going to start with the why first. And that's the first point on your outline. So why should we even love people? Well, plain and simple. If there's nothing else that you learn from this morning, and who knows, there might not be. If there's anything that you take away, I want you to walk out of here knowing this one question. Why should we love people? And it's your first bullet. Jesus commands it. If we are Christians, who are we supposed to be like? Okay, where's my students? What's two plus two in church? Thank you. You can't go wrong with Jesus. We are to be like Jesus. And it's plain and simple right here. Jesus actually commands it. In John 15, I'm not going to read all the verses in between, but starting with verse 12, it says, My command is this, love each other as I have loved you. And then he mentions, he goes through all this stuff from verses 13 through 16, and then in 17 he says it again. This is my command, love each other. This isn't just Jesus saying, if you feel like it, love each other. No, he's commanding it. Go and love each other. If Jesus is commanding it, it's probably important. These are in the red words. Those are the real important words. So if you see it in red, you should probably do it. So Jesus is commanding us to go and love one another. And he goes a step further in... In scripture, in the gospels, and we're gonna, I'm not gonna read all the verses that are listed there for you. I might paraphrase, paraphrase a few of them. But I wanna start here in, in Matthew 22. Now, you will not hear Scott, maybe even Matt, say this, but I'm a youth pastor, so I'm okay with it. If you have your Bibles, turn to them. If you got your iPhones, I'm cool with it. I have all my scriptures on an iPad, so it's totally cool. Like Matt said last week, you'll never hear my grandpa say, open your iPhones to Matthew. No, I will. Go ahead. <clears throat> Don't be playing like Farmville or anything like that. Just stay focused. But so if we look in Matthew, what's going on here is Jesus in the past few verses, have already, he's already put the Sadducees in their place. And now the Pharisees are coming up and they're trying to trap Jesus. Now we're going to look at a few examples today of how people tried to trap Jesus. Spoiler alert, it never works. You would think they would learn from people's past mistakes. They don't. So they're trying to trap Jesus here, and they just plain and simple, they say, hey, Jesus, what's the greatest commandment? And plain and simple, he says, the greatest commandment is to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And the second is like it, love your neighbor as yourself. This is the greatest commandment. Jesus answers it. Now, I don't like putting weights on sin, 
because sin in general is just rebellion against God. It's going against God's way for our life. But if Jesus himself is saying this is the greatest commandment, it's probably going to be judged the harshest later on. So we need to make sure that above anything else, we are loving God with everything that we have and then loving the people around us. Now, we can get into semantics about it and talk about how if you're not loving God, you're going to sin. I get that. But this is vitally important to our lives. Love God first. And we're going to get into this again later. I'm going to hit it again and love people around you. The second one I want to point out is in John 13. Jesus again commands this. It's not just to, to love people around you and say, yeah, I love you. I'm going to treat you good. I'm going to open a door for you. It goes further than that. Uh, 1334 says, a new command, again command, I give you, love one another. As I have loved you, so you must love one another. And then he gives a reason as to why this is important in verse 35. By this, everyone will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. So now we have, we're supposed to love, that's the greatest commandment. Jesus is telling us, go and love people, but why? Why is this important? It's because the people around you are going to know that you're my disciples. I promise you, if you go out of here and you treat people the right way and you love them with agape love, this self-sacrificing love that people don't normally see in our culture today, they're going to notice something's different. They're going to come up and ask you, and then you're going to be able to possibly share the gospel with them. At the very least, invite them to come to church where the gospel will be presented to them. It opens up tremendous possibilities because it will look different than what we're used to. Now, I want you to think real quick, and I don't want any answers because if you all shout it out, I won't hear any of them. But just think right now, what is the greatest act of love that you have ever seen in your lifetime? There's a, a movie coming out. Actually, it just came out this past week. It's based off a book about a, uh, a man's life called Louis Zamperini. And Matt's talked about him up here before when the book was real popular. And he was a prisoner of war, and it's, it's a great story. I encourage you to go see it. Talk about showing God's love everywhere. He uses God's love as a way to go and show forgiveness to people in a way that you wouldn't even believe. So I encourage you to go see it. But when I was thinking about this, it wouldn't be fair of me to ask a question, make you think of the greatest act of love and not think of one myself. This self-sacrificing love, what does that really look like? Well, the greatest act of love that's really affected my life was when I was, before I was even born. If you don't know, my mom was 17 when she had me, and uh, when she was ready to give birth to me, like all these thoughts are going through her mind. She doesn't know how she's going to be able to provide for me. She's 17. Both my grandma and my grandpa, they were working all the time, and it was crazy. Again, she was 17, so she even considered, you know, possibly adoption. Like, that's going through her mind. And my Aunt Luann was married to this guy named John Scheel, and they decided to take my mom out to dinner. And they sat down, and John looked my mom in the eye, and, and he said, Amy, if you have this baby, he can live with us until you're ready to take him. Until you graduate college, you're able to financially support yourself and, and a child. We will take care of him. They had two kids of their own at this time. They didn't have to do that. It was this self-sacrificing love. They said, you know, we don't care about that. This child is important, and we want to make sure that you can, that you can keep your child. They actually said, we can't imagine giving, being, having to give up one of our own children. So I live with, with John and Luann and, uh, for like the first three to four years of my life and my grandparents, and then I was at my, my dad's side of the family, and all that was a blessing in my life. 
And it all comes back to the fact that I had someone who, said, who stepped up and said that they would take care of me for a while. So that, I, wouldn't, I might not be here today if it wasn't for that, and I'm eternally grateful for that. So that's how we should love and why we should love. Let's look at who we should love. And it's always easy to love the people around us, our family members especially. But this is the one that no one likes, and it's love your enemies. In the book of, I gave you a couple verses where it's mentioned, but I like in Matthew where Jesus is talking again, again, in the red words, so it's important. Jesus points out, you have heard it said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you that you may be children of your Father in heaven. Again, he's not just telling you to do it, he's telling you why. We all want to be children of God, known as children of God. As Christians, we should. And if you really want to be known as children of God, go and love people, even more than just love people, love your enemies, and pray for the ones who persecute you. That's like asking me, a guy from Wheelersburg, to pray for someone from the west side. <laughs> but seriously, this is, this is vitally important. By the way, I do pray, because I pray for our whole staff and our secretaries from the west side, so that counts. And, but, but this is so, so important. And I'm going to take it a step further. It doesn't have to be someone that's personally wronged you. Jesus talks about that. If someone comes up and slaps you in the face, turn your other cheek and let them slap the other side. It can be someone who you don't like. This one might hurt a little. I don't care if you're Democrat, Republican, Independent, whatever. You should be praying for the President of the United States. Whether you like President Trump or not, you should be praying that he looks to God for guidance and leads us in the right way. I'm not trying to get into politics. That's just fact. Be honest, I didn't agree with everything President Obama did, but I was praying for him. I didn't want to. My grandpa kicked me in the seat of my pants and said, you better be doing it. I'm not kidding. He really did. This is very important. Whether you like people or not, we are called as Christians to love one another and even take it further than just showing kindness to people. Pray for them. Show it with your actions. Jesus showed it in his actions in the 8th chapter of John. We're going to look at a story that many of you probably know uh, about the adulterous woman. Now, I'm going to read this whole thing, and then we'll kind of break it down a little bit and, and kind of some different things that Jesus is showing us here. So let's pick it up. Uh, in verse, I'm going to pick it up in verse 2 actually. At dawn, he, meaning Jesus, appeared again in the temple courts where all the people gathered around him, and he sat down to teach them. The teachers of the law and the Pharisees brought in a woman caught in adultery. They made her stand before the group and said to Jesus, Teacher, this woman was caught in the act of adultery. In the law, Moses commanded us to stone such women. Now, what do you say? Again, they were using this as a trap in order to have a basis for accusing him. But Jesus bent down and started to write on the ground with his finger. When they kept questioning him, he straightened up and said, Let any one of you who is without sin be the first to throw a stone at her. Again, he stooped down and wrote on the ground. At this, those who heard began to go away one at a time, the oldest ones first, until only Jesus was left with the woman still standing there. Jesus straightened up and asked her, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? No one, sir, she said. Then neither do I condemn you, Jesus declared. Go now and leave your life of sin. Now a few things before we get into the actual text here. 
The first thing I want to point out is this poor woman. This woman right here was, had to have been absolutely humiliated. She was not only caught in the act of adultery. One, that's embarrassing enough. If you get caught in that act, you're embarrassed. Let's take it a step further. You've been held by the Pharisees and the teachers of the law against her will, I guarantee it. But she's held there until Jesus shows up. And now she's put into the middle of the temple courts in front of Jesus and the entire group. And they're pointing out, saying she was caught in the act of adultery. So not only was she caught, but now it's pointed out to the entire group what she's done. She has to be absolutely humiliated. And I think that probably makes Jesus want to be even a little more sympathetic towards her. So let's look at what Jesus did. First of all, they were trying to trap Jesus. That's your first point there. And how do we know that they were trying to trap Jesus? Well, it says it, first of all. That's usually a big clue if it's in Scripture. That's, all right. But how is it a trap? Well, what happens if Jesus says, no, don't stone her? Well, they're going to accuse him of not upholding the Old Testament law. Okay, well, what if he says, yeah, go ahead and stone her? Yeah, he's holding, upholding the Old Testament law. But he's going to be known throughout everywhere as a guy who is personally responsible for allowing a stoning to happen. Either way, Jesus isn't going to look good on this if he just answers it yes or no. So what does he do? He doesn't even say a word. Instead, I love this, he just starts writing on the ground. Now, we don't know what he wrote. We'll never know unless we get up into heaven and he tells us. But there's a couple theories out there about what Jesus wrote. Some people say that he wrote their names on the ground. Some people say he wrote their sins on the ground, everything that they've committed. Now, I have the verse in, I don't want to get ahead of myself. I'll get to that. All I know is that whatever Jesus wrote, it made them tuck their tails and take off. He wrote something on the ground, then he stood up and said, all right, you can stone her, but whoever has no sin, go ahead and cast the first stone at her. No idea. No idea what he wrote. But has anyone ever had, like, your parent students, or maybe even some of you older ones that remember your parents, saying this one thing, and you knew that you were had, and you had, like, this pit in your stomach? Anybody have that? Like, it's just like, do moment? Okay. I'm going to give you one of mine. So, when I was a senior in high school, my grandparents were out of town. I was on the golf team, and believe it or not, I was actually pretty good back in my day. My dad still can't beat me. So, I, uh, I was at practice. My grandparents are out of town, and they had asked me to get their mail for them while they're gone. I can do that. So after practice one day, I'm driving on Byerly Road behind Clay High School. And I don't know if you've been back there, but there's like a little turnaround area to go through all the houses. And apparently, I wasn't exactly going the right speed. Um, going a little faster than I should have been. And when the cops saw me, that wasn't a good feeling. So I pull into the driveway, and I'm hoping, okay, if I just go inside to get the mail, maybe they'll just let me go. That didn't happen. I had a buddy with me. His name was Alex, and I get to the front door and start to walk in. I hear, Andrew, dang, turn around, go to the cop. And I said I was going 47, and I actually remembered uh, when I went to the cop's car and he pointed to his radar, he, well, he asked me how fast I thought I was going. I looked at his radar. He said, yeah, you're going 49 in a 25. That's one away from double. That's not good. By the grace of God, somehow I got a warning. Don't know. Students, don't do that. That's bad. You won't get a warning. I got lucky. 
So time goes by, and now uh, school has started, and we're having golf matches and stuff, and my parents are actually out of town. My mom, my stepdad, all my siblings, my whole family's gone with my grandma. I think they're in Arizona or something like that. And so I, I have a golf match out at Big Beaver Golf Course in Piketon, and I shoot really well. I shot even par. I medaled for the round, which means I did the best. My name is going to be in the paper. Super psyched about it. So I call my grandpa up and say, hey, let's go get dinner because I want to brag a little. And so we meet at Arby's in Wheelersburg, and we get out of the car, and I just go up to him. I don't say a word. I just high-five him. Bam. We go in. We order our food. We sit down. We start to open up my roast beef sandwich. I'm all excited. We pray. And then he goes, so is that high-five worth anything? I said, yeah. I shot even par. I, I, I meddled for the round. I did really well. He goes, oh, that's good. That's good. That'll make up for the ticket you almost got at my house. <laughs> Don't! I wanted to tuck my tail and walk out of that Arby's without saying another word. So I kind of imagine that's probably what the, the Pharisees felt here. Uh, again, we don't know what they were saying, but another possibility what Jesus could have wrote down is a, is a scripture from the Old Testament. In Jeremiah 17, 13, it says, Lord, you are the hope of Israel. All who forsake you will be put to shame. Now check this. Those who turn away from you will be written in the dust because they have forsaken the Lord, the spring of living water. That's another possibility. If nothing else... It had to have been on the back of the minds of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law because they would have known this stuff. They would have had to. So they tucked their tails and ran. One of the reasons that I love this story, though, is because of what Jesus does by riding in the dust. By riding in the dirt and the ground, whatever you want to say, he reverses the punishment completely. These Pharisees and teachers of the law are saying this woman should be put to death. They're acting as God. They're acting as judge, jury, and executioner. And deciding who should live and die because of the Old Testament law. Jesus knows that the punishment of sin is death. For all sin and fall short of the glory of God. We don't deserve to go to heaven. It's by the grace of God that we are saved. So by writing in there and saying, you without the first sin, throw the stone. Or without sin, throw the first stone. Jesus completely reverses the punishment. Say, you know what, you guys are just as guilty as this woman because of your sin. Because of what you've done. So they tuck their tails and they take off. The last thing that I, I really like and that I take away from this story is what Jesus proves. He proves a couple of things. And the first is that he proves his deity a little bit. He proves that he is God because whatever he wrote had to have been like a secret sin of people or make people realize their secret sin that no one else knows about. But when he's writing in there, all of a sudden these Pharisees and teachers of the law are going, how in the world does he know that? They know something's up. They know something, something's going on. Something that scares them enough that they tuck their tails and run. So he's proven his deity a little bit. And then he proves his purpose. That's the, the blank there that I want you to get. Now we all know John 3.16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only, that whosoever believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. Great. What's John 3, 17 say? Yeah, we don't know that one. Jesus proves his purpose with this. And here you see the purpose. John three seventeen says, For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. Jesus bends down to this woman who is humiliated, and in her mind, 
there's still one person that can stone her. According to Old Testament law, Jesus could still stone this woman. But instead, he says, hey, who condemns you? Who, who's left here standing who's going to condemn you? She says, no one. He says, well, good, because I don't condemn you either. Now go and sin no more. Jesus doesn't condemn this woman. He shows grace, he shows mercy, he shows forgiveness, and he shows love to this woman who, especially in her eyes, probably didn't even deserve it. He says, you know what, I don't hold this against you. Now go and sin no more. That's the kind of love that we need to be showing to the people around us. No matter what they do, maybe they do slap you in the face. Jesus says, turn the other cheek, let them do it again. I know it's easy to point to Jesus because he's going to do it the right way every time, but we need to be striving every single day to be pushing toward that goal. So now we've talked about how to love, why to love, and who to love. Now what should you love? This is what I'm going to close with here a little bit. Uh, First of all, what should you love? Again, in Luke 10, 27, it says the actual verse, but I'm going to read a little bit more. Verses 25 through 28 of the 10th chapter of Luke says, On one occasion, an expert of the law stood up to Jesus, or stood up to test Jesus. Again, trying to trick Jesus, test him, whatever you want to say. Spoiler alert, it's not going to work. Teacher, he said, what must I do to inherit eternal life? So Jesus knows this is a trap, and instead of answering, he flips it on him. He says, well, what's, what is written in the law? How do you read it? And he says, to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, strength, and to love your neighbor as yourself. Jesus said, well, you've answered correctly. Do this and you'll live. So instead of getting trapped, Jesus just lets the guy answer and said, that's right, I'll go do it. He's not getting trapped by anything. It wasn't even a test because he let the dude answer his own question. And Jesus is saying this is right. What should you love? First and, first and most importantly, love God above all else. Whatever else is in your life, if God is not first, then you got a problem. I feel like God kind of uses Ricky Bobby's slogan, if you ain't first, you're last. God has to be first in your life. The second that I want to point out, and this is essential, husbands, love your wife. Love your wife. It's found in Scripture in Ephesians 5, uh, verses 25 through 28. Husbands, love your wives, just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, to make her holy, cleansing her by washing with water through the word, and to present her to himself as a radiant church without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish, but holy and blameless. In this same way, husbands ought to love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. Now, I told you, I've only been married for four short years, and I promise you, I am not perfect. Rachel's probably shaking or nodding her head faster than she's ever nodded her head before right now. I'm not perfect. I mess up probably every day, and that woman's amazing. She forgives me time and time again. But I'm trying because I know how essential this is. Now, I'm about to get an amen from probably every woman in here. Um, sorry, guys. Men are selfish. It, it's true. And I'm going to use myself as an example. I'm definitely selfish. If I do something good, I want to hear it. I want you to tell me how good I did. And I want Rachel to tell me how good I did. She still hasn't. It's four years. 
I'm just kidding. But in all sincerity, men are selfish. We want to know that we're doing stuff good. We want to hear it. We like our egos to be built up. And I guarantee you, we love ourselves. He who loves himself, or he who loves him, his wife loves himself. I struggled there. He who loves his wife loves himself. If you really love yourself, you better love your wife. And take it a step further than just saying you love her, bringing her to church. Take time for your wife and show her that you love her. Serve her in a way that you've never served before. Because number one in your life is God. Number two is your spouse. And you better treat her that way. If we want to change anything in the upcoming generations, we need to be an example for the young men growing up right now of how we would want them to treat their wives. Men especially who have daughters, how do you want men to treat your daughter when she grows up? If you're not treating your wife the right way, why should you expect other guys to treat your daughter the right way? I promise you, the younger generation around us is watching, and they're going to mimic what we're doing. Amen, that's right. <laughs> Who else should you love? Parents, you should love your children. Take it a step further than that. I'm, I would be doing myself a disservice if I didn't talk to the parents on Youth Sunday. I work with your kids every single week, and I love doing it, and I'm not going to stop anytime soon. My goal is to make sure that your students grow closer to God each and every week, that they walk out with a better understanding of who Jesus is and how to serve them with their lives. But Proverbs 22.6, I'm reading it out of the ESV. Sam, you're welcome. Train up a child in the way he should go, even when he's old, so that even when he's old, he will not depart from it. It doesn't say, love your child, make him into a, an athlete. Train up your child in the way he should go, meaning in the way of Jesus' teachings, so that when they get old, he won't depart from it. Surveys are showing, seven out of ten of all the students that are in here, they're going to walk away from the faith when they hit college. We are dedicated here at Christ Community Church to reversing that and making sure that 7 out of 10 of them stay in the faith and stay with their relationship with Jesus Christ. I'm dedicated to that. But I can't do it by myself. We did a little bit of math. See this ping pong ball? It represents one hour. This is what I get with your students every single week. One hour. Now, I use this hour to pour into them. We play games, we have fun, all that stuff. But we also open God's Word, and we dive into it, and how to apply God's Word to our lives. I'm doing good on time. <laughs> this is what I get. Now, I get to see them at sporting events and stuff like that. Sometimes I'll come to your house, maybe play video games with them, fun stuff. But I don't get to really dive into God's word as much as I'd like. I get one hour. Now here's the math we did, and you're not going to like this. And we were generous, too. We gave you eight hours of sleep a night. I'm over here. This way? All right. So we, we did some math. We gave you eight hours of sleep, and we even gave eight hours for school and schoolwork. 
This is what you, this is how much time you have with your kids every single week. I get this, you get that. What are you spending that time on? What's important in your life? We talked about God being first. Is God really first? Are you training up your children in the way they should go? I'm challenging you right now. Step up and train your children. I am going to do everything that I can to make sure that they know Jesus when they graduate and when they go off to college. But I can't do it by myself. I've baptized a bunch of kids. There's some that I've baptized. They aren't Christians anymore, and I know that. And that eats me up. And I hope it eats up the parents, too, because they, know that that, they should know that's important. Please take time, put God first, not just for yourself, but for your whole family. Your kids should know that God is first. And not sports, not school, not anything else. God is first in your life. Now, we talked about what to love. Well, what should you avoid? Colossians 3, 5 says, put to death, therefore. And remember, when you hear the word therefore, it means sit up and listen. This is going to be good. Colossians 3, 5 says, put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. Verse 6 says, <laughs> this one hurts, on account of these, the wrath of God is coming. It doesn't say, don't do these things as much. It says, put it to death. If you have anything in your life that is above God, put it to death. If your computer is causing you to sin, you drive down the highway, there's a 70 mile an hour zone right when you hit Wheelersburg, chuck it out the window. I don't care how much it costs. It's not worth your life. It's not worth your relationship with God. Whatever it is causing you to sin, and we are all guilty of sin. It says it right there, Whatever is earthly in you. We have these desires in our life. Because sin is in the world and we are human. What are you going to do with it? You're going to cave to sin? You're going to let that be first in your life? Or are you going to let God be first? This is vitally important. To not just avoid it, but to put it to death. Those are some pretty strong words. And I hope we take them seriously. So if you know me at all, I don't have any children right now. And so it might be kind of hard to, you might be going, well, you don't have kids, you don't understand. Okay, I'll give that to you. So let's hear it from a parent. And one that was pretty well known for being a Christian. I mean, I don't know, maybe you've heard of him. His name's Billy Graham. He had five kids, and he admits in one of his books that he wasn't the best dad. He let some other stuff get in the way. And so he had to really evaluate his life. So he gives these six tips for parents. So we're going to look at those to, to close up our time here. The first one is to take time with your kids. And I don't mean coming to church and your kids are here with you. That's not taking time with your kids. I'll give my, my mom and my stepdad credit. They live in Cincinnati and I've got three younger siblings. And what they do is they do what's called date night. And it's not with them. It's with the kids. They'll take one-on-one -on -one time where they'll go to dinner and spend time with their kids so that they can ask them about their lives, spend one-on-one -on -one time with them, get to know them better, see what's going well, see what they're struggling with and how they can help. They're taking time with their kids. Take time with your kids, one-on-one. -on -one. Give your children ideals for living. Let them know what's right and wrong. 
And not just what you think is right and wrong. Go to the Bible. It lays it out pretty simply. Number three, set your children a good example. So now you've given them the ideals for your life or for their life. You better be showing it in yours. You can't ask people to act a certain way if you're not willing to do it yourself. Number four, plan activities for your children. Plan stuff to do together. And this kind of goes with taking time with them. Go do stuff. Spend time with them. Here's number five. Discipline your children. I'm not saying take them out behind the woodshed and go to town. Please don't take that. I'm not saying beat your kids. Don't do that. That's bad. But discipline them. Let them know that there are consequences for their actions. What is the first thing that, that God did with Adam and Eve when they messed up? He gave them one thing that they cannot do. They disobeyed it, and boom, there's consequences for their actions. They're kicked out of the garden. There's sin that's entered the world. Death will enter the world. There are consequences for our actions, and our students and our kids need to know that. And this is the most important. Teach your children to know God. Teach them. That goes with Proverbs 22.6. Train them up. Teach them. Spend time with them. If you're not reading the Bible together, you have all these hours. Read a chapter of the Bible together. If you have little kids, get a storybook Bible and read it together. This is so important. And I'm not saying that sports aren't important. Sports are great. I love sports. Love Kentucky basketball. Kentucky football is getting a little better. I love the Buckeyes. And as much as it hurts, I actually like the Browns. I mean, they broke their losing streak by not winning, okay? It's the most Browns thing to do ever. So I love sports, and I love school. I told you I have an elementary education background. I think school is so important. I'm a, an instructional aide at Wheelersburg High School right now. School is vitally important, but it's not more important than God. We lost one of the most brilliant minds that we've ever seen and that we may ever see in our lifetimes. Professor Stephen Hawking was a brilliant man, but he didn't know God. And I pray that he came to know God before he died. He was a very staunch atheist. But I pray that something opened up in his mind and in his heart to where he came to know our Lord and Savior before he died. Now again, yeah, I don't have kids, and so I hope you're not brushing this off, but just in case you are, you know, we have our men's Bible study, and it's a video series with a guy named Matt Chandler. He is the pastor of the Village Church in Texas, and he's good. He's one of the best-known pastors in America today, or in the world today, probably. And he kind of talks about this, this issue a little bit himself, and he's got some kids. So if you don't, don't want to listen to me, listen to this parent. Roll it, Chris. When I think about the responsibility that God has given uh, me uh, in, in relationship to my children, the, the primary one uh, is disciple maker. So that the, um, the unction of my life and my relationship with my sons, uh, my son and my daughters is to grow them into a mature relationship with Jesus Christ. And, and as they get older, what I find is they, they have these loves that are good loves. So I think about uh, my son in particular who... Uh, just loves the game of football and 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 at this point even though he's young he's, he's actually pretty good at the game and 
and, and so I can just see it kind of start to pull at him in, in regards to his identity, in regards to kind of how he thinks and what he wants to be and what he trains towards and how he, and, and I love all of that. And I, and I can then be, begin to feel some things pulling me like I want him to do well, I want him to be successful. And I'm looking around at this ultra competitive day in which we live where there's, I think, 74 million high school athletes. Now that drops significantly at the college level and then nearly vanishes at the pro level. Uh, but all of us think maybe our kid, because he's good as, when he's 12, might have a shot at the pros. We want to do everything we can to help him. Uh, and, and yet, despite the pull I feel on my heart and the pull he feels on his, uh, re really the primary role I play in his life is to point him to Jesus. And sports can be this amazing tool that teaches discipline, that teaches hard work, that, that teaches that, that sometimes the world's broken and you lose. Um, and and this, this ability to kind of come alongside this thing he loves uh, to help shape him to the kind of man that God would have him be. And so I, I know in our lives, we just we have some pretty hard, fast rules uh, on just how far sports encroaches into our worlds. And so uh, Sunday uh, is a day that we worship the Lord and we go to church together as a family. Uh, and there is no tournament. There's no opportunity. There's, there, there's nothing like that uh, that gets to push um, that space out of uh, the center uh, for our family. And so we, we've just protected that time. Uh, another place that we've protected is uh, our, uh, at this season, our middle school Bible study uh, is a place that my expectation is that uh, my son will be at middle school Bible study. And so those are these two places in particular going regardless of what happens in the sports worlds, these are the priority for us. And then I wanna make sure my conversations with him and even the lessons he's learning in sports are always tied back to the kind of person that God is asking him to be and that God is growing him into. And so uh, way too often it's easy for us to sacrifice our kids or, or rather disciple our kids on the altar of athletics. And I just want to shoot a quick video to encourage you. There's something greater than that's going to live far beyond their athletic career, even if they are part of the like 3% or something that make it to the pros. So moms and dads, invest in your child's spiritual walk with Christ. Do you want your child to be known as an athlete or as a follower of Christ? Maybe you're past the time where your kids are already grown up or you don't have kids yet. Invest in people around you. Make sure that the people around you know who Jesus is. Dive into people's lives and lead them to Jesus. And for our parents, I love this quote from, from Billy Graham just emphasizing the importance of this. It says, In the sight of God, parents are responsible for the training of their children. If parents fail, God is going to hold them responsible. That's pretty powerful stuff. I told you, I will continue to do everything that I can to make sure that your children know who Jesus is and know how to express his love to others in their lives. But will you please jump on board with me and train your kids while you have time at home? You have all this time. Get into God's word. Make sure that they know that God is the most important person in your life. And if he's not, it's time to repent a little bit. Ask for forgiveness for putting something above God. Because nothing should be there. Now I'm done. And we're going to pray here in just a second. But I know that my grandpa is not just going to 
watch the film of this or, or whatever and decide how well I did by what I said, he's going to check the buckets in the back. So I don't know, make it look good like I did really well. In all sincerity, though, please, when you go from here, just love people. Show them the love of God. I want to be known, I want this congregation to be known as the most loving church in all of southern Ohio and northern Kentucky. That if we closed our doors one day, people would miss us because of how much we love other people. Show your love to others. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for your word this morning. And I just ask that we can go from here and, and just love your people. We can... Show your agape love, the self-sacrificing love to all the people around us because that's what we're called to do. I ask that you can give us the strength to put you first in our lives and to emphasize that by our actions. I ask that you be with us as a congregation and have the strength to, to keep you first when everything around us is putting you on the back burner. God, we love you. We give you all the praise here this morning, and it's in your name that we pray. Amen. Thank you, Christ Community. Christ Community Church, located at 25th and Thomas Avenue in Portsmouth, Ohio. Christ Community meets on Saturday at 5 p.m. and Sunday at 10.30 a.m. For more information, visit www.christcommunity.net or check out our Facebook page.